Dom Price sees the future. But he's not a late-night hotline psychic. Dom is the globally renowned work futurist at Atlassian, Australia's first multi-billion dollar software company. Dom's real superpower is his ability to inspire people to transform the practices of their everyday working lives so they can work anywhere with real flexibility and purpose and design the futures they want to intentionally step into. But what first really strikes you about Dom is that he is unmistakably from Manchester. He has boundless curiosity and is infectiously joyous. In this conversation, we go deep with Dom on how we work, why we work, and how his recent battle with cancer catalyzed his own work-life shifts, and why we should all be doing audits on ourselves every Friday afternoon. In this current COVID world, we unfortunately couldn't be in the room together with Dom for this chat, so we do apologise if the sound quality is a little bit dodgy in this episode. It's really well worth a listen, though. This conversation is loaded with heaps of gems. Here's our chat with Dom. Dom Price, welcome to Human Cogs. We're pretty excited about this conversation today. <laughs> Dom, you're a work futurist, which is pretty yeah. much a made-up job, right? Like what the hell yeah. do you actually do? It was originally made up, and it's one of those things that after we made it up, accidentally became true. And so we, we made it up uh, originally to annoy one of my uh, co-founders, Scott Farquhar, and um, he made a statement once that anyone at Atlassian can call themselves anything they wanted externally. He's like, I don't care. Like, you have a job to do. Like, I want you to find meaning in your work. And I want you to have passion for it. But I don't care what anyone calls themselves. And I openly said one day, what about work futures? He's like, well, you know, apart from that. And so when we had the opportunity to really wind him up, we're like, hey, let's call me a work futurist. But the reality was we sat there and said, Atlassian's mission is to unleash the potential in every team. We need to understand teamwork in the future. And what does that look like? Very much from the human side, right? Which is why human cogs fascinates me. So I'm like, the technology side is easy. Everyone's going about AI, machine learning, automation, right? It's all good. But what's happening to humans? And how do we understand the role of humans as individuals and humans in that team dynamic? And how do we understand that in the future so that we can build stuff today that you don't know you need yet? So it actually was a joke that became true. And so if you think about items like, what does that actually mean? Like, what does a typical week or month look like? I spend about a third of my time internally at Atlassian helping drive our project around the future of work. Great example in the last year, you know, we announced Team Anywhere after the pandemic hit that we will allow Atlassians to work from anywhere in the world for the rest of our existence. And we're like, cool, we announced that. And then we said, cool, how do we do that? <laughs> We've announced it to our 5,000 staff. Well, we have no idea how we're going to do it. So we like to make statements of intent early and then back into them. And then sort of freak out freak out later. Yeah, yeah. And you work out on the fly. Yeah. And then, and then it's, there's a third of the time with customers and then a third of the time at events, just sharing our stories so that we can actually start to provoke humans to actually start building their future rather than waiting it for, to happen to them. Mm. And we would love to jump so deeply into how we work, why we work, your work, mm. teams, how the COVID pandemic has kind of really changed that for good. But Dom, would you mind before we go into all those awesome juicy areas that are really your wheelhouse, we actually want to step into your shoes and enter your world when in 2020 um, a phone call changed everything for you, uh, your work mm. and your life. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I mean, there's a series of serendipitous phone calls that sort of uh, took my, my early part of 2020 onto its own trajectory. I'd actually done uh, a crazy start to the year. I'd, I'd done, within January alone, I'd done trips to the UK, uh, Munich, uh, India, Japan. Like, I was all over the place with, with work. And things were going really well. And I actually landed back and uh, had a phone call from, from my doctor. He said, Dom, uh, I need you to come in. I was like, there's no way of me coming in. I'm traveling all over. He's like, okay, let's do this over the phone. Um, you've got early stage bowel cancer. And it's like, oh, cool. I'm like, that's really inconvenient. I've got a whole of trip. And you go into that weird mode of thinking very much about logistics. And it, it wasn't an impact on health in the immediate moment. I was like, okay, let's now squeeze this in. I've got a trip to the US plan. I want to do this. And, and then you're like, oh my God, what, what, what did you say? <laughs> he just said the C word. And so it kind of took me into this moment of going, okay, so I need to look after myself because this is, you know, existential threat in front of me. And, and the serendipitous part of it was for, for the six years before that, my, my uh, older sister, Trudy, had been struggling with her own uh, cancer uh, diagnosis. And I'd been regularly going back to the UK to visit her. 
And so it's weird for me to go from this, this mental mode of caring to a mental mode of going, oh, oh, like, like it's me now. And also for me, and I think we all have this moment in time where we feel like indestructible. And I was like, oh, I'm only 42. Like bowel cancer doesn't happen to 42-year-old semi-healthy men. Like this, this isn't meant to happen at this stage. So it, it, it did throw a whole of weird kind of balls in the air, right? But it really brings you back to when, when all those balls look the air, you're like, Ah, uh, maybe I'm going to redesign how I do this. Maybe I'm going to take this opportunity to think broader about life and, and impact and, and a whole other stuff that, that goes on around you because sometimes it takes those events for you to just go, what, why do I do what I do? Like, wh- what is the point? And actually, when you ask those questions, you've got to find answers. It can take a while, but you, you've got to find some answers that are different from the day-to-day grind of life. It's interesting that when you experience someone else's journey with cancer, someone who you love dearly, your sister Trudy, that that's not enough of a call to action to shift the way you live your life. Do you think that it needed to take your own diagnosis before you felt really pulled to change the way you live? Yeah, I think it's a difference between sort of incremental and revolutional, right? So so with Trudy, I mean, there's there's so many life lessons that she was able to afford me and, and share with me in her time but it does change you, right? I, I did make incremental changes, right? Even even silly stuff. And I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I was back home in Manchester and she sees me on my phone and, she, and, and I've been looking at this car that I wanted and I've been looking at this car for two years. And she just sat down with a cup of tea and she's like, can you explain to me why you've not bought it yet? And I gave her all the excuses that we give ourselves and she's like, yeah, that sounds like BS. Like, what's the real reason? And I was like, I don't know, I just feel weird buying like a nearly new car. She's like, can you afford it? I was like, yeah. And she's like, you work hard? I was like, yeah. She's like, buy the car. I was like, yeah. And actually when I landed back from, from the UK, I went straight to the, the car showroom, test drove this, this second-hand car and bought it, right? So she actually afforded me life lessons to go live life, get on with stuff, right? It's just the, the moment of when it's yourself, it's way starker, right? So instead of incremental change, when it happened to me, I'm like, ah, oh, this is time for like cataclysmic change, right? This, this isn't like moving the book around on the shelf. This is throwing the shelf out, throwing the book out and starting all over again. And so it's just a different magnitude of change that I approached with my own life because it's more of a shock. But when it happens to someone else, I think what happens is sympathy. And then when it happens to you, it's not sympathy or empathy. It's like, oh, I'm actually walking in these shoes. I'm not trying to imagine what it's like. I can actually imagine what it's like. And it's just a different experience. So what has changed? Everything and nothing. I'm still me and I'm still living my same values and my same kind of core principles. But the the way I've looked at balance has fundamentally changed. Some of that forced upon me. In 2019, I did over 100 flights, mainly due to work, but also for personal reasons. Last year, I've done none. And so that's not me being... uh, you know, uh, carbon positive or caring about the world. It's just because things got grounded. But in doing that, you're like, oh, well, how do I take that stimulus and, and what do I do with it? I can use it for good or evil. I've built a different sort of routine uh, in my life. We've worked from home, way more exercise. Uh, I, I would say I've probably shrunk um, my friendship group to some extent, but spending more time and deeper time with a smaller group of people, more meaningful relationships. You know, when you're, when you're doing 100 flights a year, you kind of fly somewhere go for drinks, hang out, you socialize, right? You have that surface level chat, but you don't get to go deep. I've got to go a lot deeper in the last year. I've got myself an amazing girlfriend. Uh, I've changed the way I think about work and how work fits into life and, and how those things integrate and what the role of them are. Um, I've had to change my diet because of my own sort of, like I said, my, my bowel cancer and, and, and the resulting surgery. I've had to change my diet and lifestyle. But these are all things that are within my control. Like, there's nothing to complain about. It's like things happen and you get on with life. I think we... We, we sometimes get carried away with what we can't do. And I think the last year for me, I focused infinitely more energy on what I can do. Not, not, not the things that are outside of my control, but the things that are either within my control or at least within my influence. And just giving them a go. And if they work, I do it again. And if they don't, I'm like, okay, at least I tried. Let's move on. Like, no one's, uh, I'm not performing heart surgery, so I'm not going to kill anyone with any of my experiments. You say that everything and, and nothing has changed. It sounds like quite a lot has changed for you. And you say in your TED Talk that prior to uh, sort of last year that you describe yourself as being emotionally unavailable. 
Um, what, what, <laughs> wait, is it funny? Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe. Yeah, what, because, what, what do you mean by that? Just imagine the moment when you when you're preparing for a TED talk and you realise that for the like four or five years pre four or five years previous you've been emotionally unavailable. Like it, it's one of those profound moments where no one could ever tell you that because you'd shun them away. You'd never take that as feedback. But when you have it as self-awareness, it's a damn sight more powerful. Because you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of have. Like, and there was a reason why, partially because if you think about your emotional energy tank, I was dedicating a lot of that to, to, to my sister, to family. Um, I was using a lot of my kind of um, general energy for, for being on stage and performances and, and, and big sort of keynotes and stuff. And so I, I was in a deficit, and I was just surviving. Like, I wasn't thriving. I was just surviving in this kind of deficit. And, and it was only when I had the time, it's actually when I had 14 days in, in quarantine when I returned to the UK, and you're forced to confront your emotions. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. And, and, and as, you know, with my personality type, the worst thing was there was nothing to distract me. Mm. Right? I couldn't throw myself into another thing and distract myself. And it was this amazing force in front of going, no, I need to confront this. I've got 14 nights by myself in quite a small hotel room, and I need to think this through. I need to be at peace with what's happened, what's going to happen. I need to realize that, that my decisions are, are mine and, and that I'm accountable for those, both the, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, and, and I choose my path from now on. So mm. what, what choices are you going to make? What trade-offs are you going to make? And, and what are those trade-offs is to be more emotionally available? Which it, it's a weird one. Like, everyone thinks that they are, and you realize that we all hold back quite a bit just in case. And I was like, I'm not going to hold back. I'm just going to let it out there and see what happens. Yeah. So you said um, being in quarantine for 14 days, and and that was after the death of of Trudy, wasn't it? That you mm, left the UK. Yeah. I, I can't imagine the emotional layers that you brought with you into that hotel room. Can you talk us through some of that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because because when when you've got someone who gets diagnosed, and, and you know, just as context for for your listeners. You know, originally Trudy's prognosis wasn't a great one. They were like, you know, a couple of years. And, and, and so in some regards, we're amazingly grateful that we got six. We got six years from, from when she got diagnosed to, to when she passed. Mm. And, and we used every one of those days to, to, to create memories and, and moments and stuff. And so in theory, you convince yourself, the rational part of your brain says, I'm prepared for this. Mm. You know it's going to happen. And then it happens, you're like, I was not prepared for that because <laughs> you can't, right? There's, there's nothing in the human body that can actually prepare you for that experience because you've just never gone through it before. You don't know what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. And you equip yourself because we're amazingly attackable people. And we do. And then, and then there's the, the family outpouring of emotions, there's a whole lot of logistics. You also realize that in that moment, everyone handles things completely differently. Like, like all my family members, all, we all had our own way of dealing with our, our grief and the emotion. That's cool. There isn't a right way. Like everyone's going to do it their own way. But it was a very busy time in the UK, sorting stuff out. Um, and then kind of a surreal time, you know, playing with everyone in hazmat suits. You know, COVID was still sort of, uh, uh, sort of vibrant. And so there's a limited amount of people on this plane, all the, all the staff in hazmat suits, and then getting to, to that hotel room and going, oh, like, this is it now. And so there's this suddenness to that pause. It's, it's like it's a halt. Because you're not on this treadmill of, planning funerals or wills or, or like all, all the admin that goes along and the emotion that goes along with that passing and, and, and all the family together. It's like a cacophony mm-hmm. of emotion. And then bang, it's you by yourself. And, and, and it actually ended up being, like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have asked for it, mm. but I, it actually ended up being super helpful because it just enabled me to slow everything down and just be like, ask myself some questions and not have to answer them. Because mm. you've got 24 hours a day locked in the room, right? So you're mm. like, other than the knock on the door three times a day for meals, there is no human interaction. So you're like, okay, like, what, what, do I, what do I want to unpack today? Like, and, and do I even want to unpack anything today? Do I want to just watch rubbish TV and distract myself? And then you're like, no, I, I want to take apart this experience and unpack it and understand it. And how did it respond? And what does this mean for me or my life or whatever? And it's not about getting to answers, because I didn't. I didn't get to many answers at all in those two weeks. It's just about confronting one by one each of those layers. And you go, what, what does that mean? You know, for, for me, and, and an example, you know, me and my sister would we, we, we chat very regularly on, on WhatsApp, right? And so there's a particular UK show that I'd watch in Australia. And whenever I watched it, I'd send her a picture of me watching it and we'd have some banter, right? And so you know that at some point in the future of time, you're going to be watching that show again and it's going to trigger that, that response, right? You want to text that person, you want to message them, but you can't. 
right? They're not there anymore. And so there's, there's the emotional layer of that moment in time in those 14 days, but there's also this realization there's going to be so many triggers mm-hmm. in the future that, that, that sometimes just creep up on you from nowhere that actually grab you and bring you back into that emotional moment. You're like, oh, how am I going to handle that? Am I going to let it bury me? Or am I going to let it build me? Right, that's the, that's the decision you get to make every time. I wonder if you'd gone there if you hadn't had the fourteen days quarantine, because I think you need to take some credit for making the choice. Yes, you were. Th- this experience was catalyzed by being in a small hotel room looking at four walls for fourteen days. Mm. But you could have flicked through social media or watched Netflix or called mm. people. You could have done so many other. You said there was there was nowhere else to go, but you could have stayed in that um, distracted state, and, yeah. and you chose not to. So I guess, again, just listening to you speak, we don't all need to wait until we're 14 days in quarantine before we ask ourselves some of these questions. And I love that you said, I wasn't looking for answers and I didn't come up with any. It was taking the time to ask the question. And it reminded me of Viktor Frankl's um, Man's Search for Meaning, the story of of the Holocaust and Mm. having, and being trapped, being trapped in in an agonising situation that doesn't compare to 14 days in quarantine quarantine, of course, by any stretch, mm. but that, that call to action to dig deep within yourself, no matter mm. how painful it is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, yeah it, it's fair. Dom, one of the things you've said about uh, that time is that it made you really think about happiness and the mm. role of, of happiness in your life. And you've recently developed uh, something which is sort of a happiness measurement tool, although I've probably buggerized <laughs> what it is, um, the personal moral Inventory, yes. which are three big words. Um, tell us about it. What is it? Well, let me just give you a background quickly. So, it, a part of my role um, as a work teacher is I got to travel the world and meet some amazing people, uh, Euroscientists, uh, leaders from from sports teams, military teams, uh, some of the best of us coaches, people that genuinely understand like elite human performance. Mm-hmm. And, and in chat to all those, I, I pick all these little nuggets of ideas that I might want to put, you know, sort of. Uh, uh, squeezed together at some point. And, and actually from a military person that I met at a, a Navy SEAL at one of these events told me about a moral inventory that Navy SEALs did before they get into battle. Because they don't want to pick people to go into battle that have the best skills. They want to pick people that will have your back when the proverbial hits the fan. And that's a different criteria, it turns out. You're like, oh, you know, Sabine might be the best sniper, but I, I just don't think that when, when you know, that stuff goes wrong, she's going to support me. So actually I'm going to pick someone who's not as good but we're going to work better as a team. Mm. And there's something about that dynamic that fascinated me. And then what I decided to do was to fuse it with, with the work from the quadruple bottom line, which is from the world of finance, which is how do we get companies to report in a more rounded fashion? So not just on profit, but mm. on how they impact the planet and, and people and a whole lot of other stuff. And I'm like, hang on, <laughs> what if we combine these together and instead of making it about business, which are, for me is too ephemeral, or about human performance, which is kind of aspirational, but no one wakes up on any given day and goes, I want to be an elite human today. Well, how can we make this more consumable? I'm like, let's all do it ourselves. Let's have a personal moral inventory where we literally take stock of how we're balancing our lives right now and work out where we're in deficit and work out where we're, we're, we're actually positive. But actually what's been profound is the number of people that not only were imbalanced when they've given me feedback on this, but actually like I was doubling down on where I was imbalanced. Like I was adding more to areas where I was already doing well mm. and I was negating areas, I was ignoring areas where I've been struggling. These are super intelligent people. So this isn't about brains, mm. but this isn't about IQ. It's just we get carried away in the system that we're in, in the world that we're in. And it's like, oh, you know, how's your week? So I mean, oh, busy. We're really busy. You're like, really? Like, is that it? Mm. Like if you get to Friday afternoon and the one thing you can tell me is you've been busy, is that a worthwhile week? Were you effective? Did you have impact? What's your legacy? Let's talk about that. Isn't that the currency, though, Dom? Like, isn't when we talk about yeah. the cult of busy and productivity at all costs, that, that's the calcified industrial system that we designed. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and we need to actually rethink and rework the system if we want to change the way we behave with oh, within it. Yeah, yeah, bureaucracy, bureaucracy at its best. What do we get rewarded for? Because when I hear you saying that people continue to try and build on the areas that they're already strong in is probably because there's some kind of reward mechanism going on there at its most basic level. Well, you'd assume so. And I actually suspected that. But you'd be amazed at the number of people where actually when I said to them, uh, one of the areas is productivity and profit. And and actually that's probably the biggest area where people have said, I've done the the personal moral inventory. I score a one on that. So for the listeners, you score minus one, zero, or one. And I score a one, and you can't score a two or a three. One is the highest score. 
And they're like, and, and actually my entire plan for 2021, all my goals were about getting better at that. And I said to them, what's the reward? What's the dangling carrot? Like, well, what is it you're looking for? They're like, I don't know. Mm. It's amazing how many people aren't doing it for some form of reward or recognition. They're doing it because they feel like pre-programmed to. It, it's like this default state. And I'm like, that's even more concerning that highly intelligent people can lack self-awareness, which we all know is true. Mm. But it's when you hear someone give you that example, and I'm like, I'm looking at these people going, you're like PhD, super smart, high IQ people, and you're pursuing something without knowing the return, and actually whilst ignoring an area where you know you're in deficit, like why? Like what? what, what is this, as you say, the, this calcified system we've created where that's normalized, where that's okay. And, and it's funny because the minute they wake up to it, they're like, oh, I've completely changed. Like I've taken my goals out of this area, so I'm already a one, and I'm going to focus on people or I'm going to focus on planet. And you're like, good. But like, did it really require that for you to become self-aware? And, and actually sometimes the answer is yes, it did. Yeah, and it, it does depend also, Dom, um, I agree yeah, with everything you're saying. I think it also depends really on what the culture upholds. So if you think about obviously different workplaces and to Sabina's point, you know, what are they rewarding but then what are those sort of behaviours uh, and ways yeah. of working that they're upholding? Now, I've been lucky enough to spend time in, uh, in you know, your Sydney and San Francisco Atlassian offices and, yeah. and had a look at the way you work and, and you've got a big uh, movement of work open at Atlassian. Uh, yeah. And, and humanizing work. What does that actually mean in practice? We can all use words and lingo, but what does it mean yeah. to work open? Yeah, we have this philosophy around open by default, which is yeah, you, you, you opt to share and, and, and therefore you have to decide to not share, right? Mm. So it's like yeah, even our internal blogging culture, like our, uh, our wiki uh, internet that we use, anyone can blog, anyone can share to anyone. And when you create any document in Atlassian, it defaults to open. So if you want to close it down, you have to actually go in and select who you're closing it down to. So we've put the effort on closure and made open the easy, easy option, right? Which is the opposite to the way most tools work or most systems work. And so what that means is you, you, you're creating this default style where you're like, no, no, share openly. But there's a whole almost methodology or set of principles around that, which is if someone shares openly, it probably means they share early. So what behaviors do we need, right, for that to work? So... Man, if you share something early with me, the worst thing I can do is chastise you if it's wrong, right? So I have to pick my language very carefully to go, ah, oh, I like the idea here. How might we do this differently? How might we do this bigger? Or how might we do this better to encourage you to work on that? Otherwise, if I, if I come over the top and go, that's rubbish, that's never going to work, which happens in most organizations, you've gone from an open system to a closed one, right, very quickly. And also, you will never share anything ever again. Mm-hmm. And so we, we create this almost perpetual um, motion through our values of, of open company, around be the change you seek, around play as a team, to say to people, how, how might we? How can we? What, what is the possible here? And how do we encourage people to, to do more, to do better, um, rather than punish impunitive and, and, and the concepts of failure? And so that's a, an amazing concept that I'm now kind of addicted to. Because with that comes this rich tapestry where I actually share with people that aren't like me and the, the feedback I get from them enables my idea to be better. So it's a win-win if I can let go of my ego, right? Open requires a massive reduction in ego. What do you do? Because that makes so much sense. But there will be people that have blocked your path, I imagine. There are people who mm. are more uh, risk-averse. There are people who mm. are naturally more pessimistic. There are people who are more fear-based in their thinking. So they're ready to mm. say, yeah, but. H- yeah. How do you navigate the, the people that are pushing back on the open mentality and the open approach that you're espousing? So it depends. If they're pushing back on the approach, that's different to if they're pushing back on my idea. So I will applaud anyone who pushes back on my idea because that's what I want to encourage. But if they're pushing back on the approach, that's a different set of questions, which is what is it, like almost at a philosophical level, what is it you're afraid of? Like what is it that's holding you back here? Because it's so so abhorrent in our values that we actually are open that, that if someone isn't, it becomes very apparent. Mm. It also requires a lot of trust, Dom, and it sounds yeah. like certainly in Atlassian you can work anywhere in the world, it's flexible work, um, that it does really require uh, trust in the, in the culture and in the teams and the people you're working with, but that also mm. people will sort of do the right thing 
well, by themselves, but by the company. And where we see this this sort of huge paradigm shift to remote work around the world with companies like Atlassian and many others uh, and truly mm. flexible time, how do you um, think about how to build that trust then with, with someone if, if they're working in that way? Yeah, it, it's a fascinating company. I mean, trust, trust for me is like oxygen, right? When it's there, you don't even realise, right? It's just there. You, you don't, when it's there, you don't nurture it. You don't have to do anything, it's just there. It's only when it's not that you feel like you're being strangled. You feel like you're being suffocated, right? And we've all been in that situation where you suddenly felt a lack of trust, like almost thrown at you, and it suffocates you. It, it almost paralyzes you, and you stop being good at all the things that you're great at. It, it, it's a strange one that often, and there's a lot of things I work with outside at Lassian that, that talk about how they're trying to build trust and that they're trying to put programs or projects together without understanding how they ever lost it in the first place. Mm. So I have a belief that we all arise in a, in a relationship. So, so the first time I, I met Matt, like you don't arise distrust, nor do you arise trusting, you arise neutral, right? And then your experiences that you have together build trust. So whenever I talk to leaders about this, I'm like, if you've got trust, that's great, just continue. If, you, if you're neutral, that probably means that you're new to a relationship. What are the shared experiences that build trust? If you're in negative, why? And then not, not that I want to chastise you. I want to know the truth of what happened that took that trust away. And, and if you look at the pandemic, there were so many examples of people doing this wrong. So the, the highest growing software segment uh, when the pandemic hit was productivity software, which is essentially surveillance software. Mm, yeah, right? exactly. Does yeah. A screenshot, right? There's a screenshot of attendance of your screen, uses AI and machine learning to interpret how busy you are and gives you a score. I'm mm. like, really? Are we in 1963 again? Do you know what's really weird about that, Dom, as well, is I thought we were moving away from a sort of presenteeism culture and a time-based metric and more toward a value-based metric around output or OKRs or, or you know, mm. what people are achieving. What, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think we've got a long way to go or not? Yeah, we have, we have got a long way to go. I mean, I, I think the more honest we are about this, the, the better we can handle it. I think there is great intent. Um, at, at large, like I, I see a lot of intent, but what I see is the intent to the, the better way of doing it. But we have a real struggle, certainly in Australia, and I'd say the same in the US. We really struggle to unlearn the old habits, right? So even on flexibility, I had a senior leader a few weeks ago said to me, Yeah, we're embracing flexibility in my organization, but mm. and I was like, Whoa, yeah. hang on. <laughs> Talk, talk to me about the asterisk at the end of flexibility. Mm. And, and, and he went through all the things. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's no longer flexibility then. <laughs> right? If, if you're saying it's flexibility, but you can't work from having a Monday or a Friday or a Wednesday, I'm like, that's not flexibility. You, you said, like, if we want to really challenge the construct, why do knowledge workers have to work nine to five minutes Friday? Like, what's the rationale? And he couldn't come up with one. He couldn't come up with a good one. But I'm like, so, so why are you so tight to that? And I just... I think in, I don't want to blame the consultants, but sometimes I think we get so carried away with a new idea, we don't give ourselves the space and the time to have a wake to the old way. We don't do the unlearning. We don't actively get rid of the old stuff. We just sprinkle the new stuff on top and don't realize that actually the only thing we're going to guarantee is organ rejection. Because you sprinkle the new stuff on and the old system says, <laughs> I've seen that right before. Just, just wait. Like, I'll outlive you. And, and we don't take the time out to remove the old ways of thinking, working, doing, deciding, all that stuff. So the residual carries on moving forward. There's yeah. no clean break. One of the things when you talk about working remotely and you're saying that that's, that's the invitation to all employees at Atlassian is that there's, I think, a concern for many people that there'll be something lost in the, in the human exchange, in the face-to-face, the water cooler story. How will you approach that? Let's be honest. I mean, I've, I've been in the workplace for 23 years and I have never seen or heard water coolers be so popular. In my <laughs> I know. Life. I know. That's why I call it the water Bring cooler story. Bring back the water cooler. <laughs> no one's even got a water cooler. But you know what I mean. It's the campfire. That's the incidental yeah, touch exactly. point. I think if, if, we, if we have, instead of using nostalgia, if we reflect honestly about those touch points, most of them were forgotten, so, which is good social, right? It's not productive. Like, if we care about productivity, and this is where the conversation gets really confusing, I think if we go down the productivity route, we're going to make some really bad decisions. If we go down the effectiveness route, which I think is the one we want to, deep down, that's when social becomes important, team cohesion, a sense of belonging, that's where diversity and inclusion and equity become important, right? In the world of productivity, hire like-minded people, they'll be really fast. So right, Don, don't, don't hire for diversity. So um, productivity then, and we see this movement recently uh, with the rise of this four-day work week and 
studies have shown that actually people are sort of working a lot harder on those four days and sometimes their day is extending and so it's a bit of a mm. fallacy. What is your view yeah. then on, on this idea of sort of flexibility and work your way in a four-day week? What, what's the reality of that? Well, I, I, so you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. So organisations go, we want flexibility. We're going uh, to instill a four-day week. I'm like, that's not flexible. Mm. That's you deciding one way for everyone, right? And, and, and we confuse exclusive and inclusive. Flexible is... There are certain outcomes that I want you to achieve. We, we, we have a shared understanding of your goals. We have a shared understanding of our preferred ways of working. We know who our network is. Uh, we're solving a new, gnarly, complex problem. Like, all right, let's fly in from around the world. Let's get in a room and break bread together. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we know that in those moments, there is a higher fidelity of solution. But you don't need that for every day-to-day activity. Yeah. And that's the norm that we're trying to challenge. If we, if we default to office, we'll continue to work in the old way. So let's default to not office yeah. and make yeah. the reason to be together very purposeful. It's human by design, like human by design. Yeah. If you think about yeah. off-sites or, you know, some of the Mickey Mousery that used to go on around that sort of stuff. But actually yeah. now when we do get together in the real world, there will be something special about that. And uh, yeah. if only by its own. And, and, and it'll be a moment. Yeah. It'll be a moment where we connect. So, so as I've said to you, I, I think what will happen is we will build relationships in person uh, and we'll maintain them online. Yeah. Right? That, that's going to happen. And I think the quicker we get used to that, and actually you know, there's a really good reason why we should get used to this quickly, and that's because the generation coming through, so the digital natives, that's the way they've been raised. Mm-hmm. Right? See, see, we're, we're digital immigrants. We grew up in an analog world, and then we converted at some point to, a, like to, to the digital world. And so we still look after this like, in person. But if you think about anyone, any any kid growing up now who is living in a virtual world on Fortnite or World of Warcraft or whatever, and is having building meaningful relationships with people in a virtual world, this is this is like default to them, right? This is like a walk in the park. For us, we're having converted this way, and so it feels harder. And but I, I don't think that should deter us from trying it. Mm. And you've said personally for yourself that you don't have a routine. That the week before you deliberately, purposely plan your week. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. So it's a little game we've been trialling out. I, 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 you know, part of my job as a futurist, I have to predict every now and then things that might happen. I think there's going to be demand for something called design your week. And so um, a few of our team have been working in the background to build it. It's the idea that on a Friday, so I'll, I'll, you know, I'll probably do it at some point on Friday afternoon, I will reflect on my week that's passed, what went well, what didn't, what the mix was like. Uh, was I planting seeds for future stuff? Was it all transactional and immediate gratification? What was the mix like? And then I look to my next week and I plan out what I want to do. And, and there's a couple of reasons for doing that. One, it's about me taking accountability for how I spend my time. It is the single most precious resource we have and we should use it very sparingly. And I think a lot of us waste it. Often sat in meetings thinking, this is a waste of time, mm-hmm. and you never get that time back. So let's be purposeful about how we spend it. And then the second reason is it enables me to say, what's the mix of synchronous time versus asynchronous? So my synchronous time is where I have an obligation with another teammate, and it's just going to be more effective for us to be online at the same time. To do that, not in person, but even if it's via Zoom or, or any of the technology, to do it synchronously at the same time. And then about half my work can be done asynchronously. And this is where the true flexibility comes in. I can essentially do that at any point in the week. I can do it at 9 p.m. or 9 a.m. because I'm not relying on someone else, right? Some people call it deep work. Um, you could call it your tasks, whatever it is. It's the work you do yourself that contributes to your team. And now it's differentiated between those two. The synchronous is, is, a, is a network effect. I need to be online, but the asynchronous isn't. So you really start to understand the flexibility. So not only do I now have the right mix of, you know, am I doing work for the future or work for today, but also what am I doing that's asynchronous and how do I plan my time effectively? Now, whatever plan I come up with never happens, right, because the world around me. <laughs> that's what I was wondering there. Hang on. <laughs> I was thinking this is so futurist? good. Aren't you a futurist, yeah, Doc? No, the, yeah. <laughs> no the, the, first, the first few weeks I did it, I was, I was aiming for perfection and I never got anywhere near. So now I just aim for progress. So I reckon at best on a Friday, I get it maybe 60, 70% complete. And that's fine. It's directional, right? It's not, it's not me planning hours and minutes on my calendar. It's just saying, how do I feel about the next week? What have I learned from the last week? What changes do I want to make? Mm. And so every week I make a small incremental change. What it means is I will never need to transform myself or my role because I adjust a little bit mm. every week. Yeah, right? I love and, so, it. And, and, and each adjustment is very consumable. I'm not doing wholesale changes. 
just little tweaks and I try something, I'm like, oh, that works. And then try something else, I'm like, oh, cool, that didn't. I thought it would, and it didn't. I'll never do that again. Mm. Right? We just constantly tweak and then we share amongst ourselves. And so it ends up being a social contract. So you're in a cycle of continuous improvement, Dom. Yeah. And if not, it may not always be improvement, but it's reflection and it's being honest with yourself, yeah. isn't it? Mm. And, and yeah. what I'm hearing you probably say loudest, Dom, is that just because we did something one way doesn't mean we have to continue that way. And that's true not mm. just in the workplace but in families, in relationships. You know, often we, yeah. we just carry sort of mindlessly whatever has gone before us thinking yeah. how else, would you know, there's no other way. Mm. Yeah, we, uh, we, we've got really good at copy, cut and paste. Yes. Right. We've not got as good at edit. Right. And so even when there was this design your week, I, yeah, I had a reflection a few weeks ago. I had a week where I was like, I just couldn't get into the zone. I don't, I don't know why. I'm looking at this week. I'm like, ah, I didn't have any walks. Right. And I was like, I, why am I doing that? I, I know that when I go for a walk in the middle of the day, the weather's nice. If I have like a half hour break, I either flip a meeting to walk and talk, or I just have an hour with no meetings and I just walk. Sometimes mm-hmm. I listen to a podcast, uh, like Human Cogs. Um, and other times I just wonder. I just wonder and I look at the sky and the buildings and squat out. It's really good for your soul. Yeah. And I realized the weeks when I did that three times in the week, I just had better weeks. And I'm like, you know what? If I'm in a better mindset, better zone, better mojo, why wouldn't I do that? That's, and that's on me. I don't need, I don't need to go to a, a boss of permission and go, I'm going to take, I'm going to take my lunch hour three days this week and I want to go for a walk. You don't need to seek someone's approval. You do that who's the right thing for you. Mm. And this is where flexibility becomes real. It's not someone telling me what I can do. Mm. It's me picking the thing that enables me to be the best version of myself. And that's what every employer wants. Yeah, and finding a way to work your way, you know, to your body rhythms or your energy levels or your personal needs at that moment in time. Dom, you are a, a... you know, a big advocate of this idea of the edit or the audit. And um, mm-hmm. I'd love you to talk a little bit about your wonderful four L's uh, that I was lucky <laughs> enough to be lovely, um, lucky enough to be part of at um, Space Series a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. So tell us about your four L kind of audit framework for one's life. I stumbled across this a few years ago with an amazing mentor of mine, Sophie Wade. And, and we talked about the idea of how you drive your own evolution. And I was just really grumpy about some stuff and, and I was busy and I was adding more and nothing was working. And I, I just had this good rant for safety. She's like, Tom, try the four L's every 90 days. Think about yourself as a leader, not anyone else. Just yourself as a leader. Look back at the previous 90 days and ask yourself these four questions. What did you love about yourself? Not, not like, because like is too short for like. What did you love about yourself? Something that you did that you're like, yeah, I nailed that. And own it. It's really good for you. Um, and then the next L's of the equation, what did you long for? What are the things that you wish you'd done that you didn't do? Um, and then what did you loathe? What was the thing that you did do that you didn't like? That didn't pay a dividend or wasn't effective or it's that habit that just sneaks back in and you know you shouldn't do it, but you do. And she's like, you're not allowed to add in the long fall until you remove the loathe because you're full. And she's like, everyone's cognitively full or time full, like whatever it is, we're all full. And so we can't add in until we remove. And I was like, oh, it's brilliant. And she's like, and, and the fourth L is, is what did you learn? What experiment did you run on yourself in the last 90 days? And what did you learn from that? Did you learn that it went well and you're going to do it again? Did you learn that it went spectacularly badly and you'll never do it again? Like, what did you learn from that? And the first few times I ran it, it was great for self-awareness and my own improvement. But the real secret source was actually when I started sharing it with, with some of my colleagues. Not necessarily people I was directly working with, but just people to say, hey, you know, here's this, this habit I've got that I loathe. If I accidentally do this, like here's a safe word, <laughs> can you say to me out loud? Because if I accidentally do it, I want you to call me out. Like I want you to hold me accountable for stopping. And, and then when I would share my longs for people, were like, ah, oh, Dom, you should totally chat to, to Mary in San Francisco. She's amazing at that. Like instead of going to learn that skill yourself, here's a peer that you can connect with that's already good at it that can share their lessons learned. And so it created this weird, like peer-to-peer networking model for me whereby I haven't read a business book since because I now can't read business books because I'm getting every 90 days, I'm getting this injection of real life examples from my peers of things that they've experimented with and tried that did work, didn't work, what they've longed for, loads, what they've learned. I, I get infinitely more value from that than any well-edited, genericized business book about leadership or management or whatever else. And so I now can't read business books. It's ruined me forever. So would you say you've had um, any significant mentors or people that have been really influential or is it Mary in the San Francisco office that's on the top of that list? Oh, I've got, I've got thousands. Like I, I can't even begin to list out. I mean, I've got formal ones where I have 
I've normally got like a, a proper mentor at any one of three stages. One that I'm trying to woo, that I want to be a future mentor, they just don't realise it yet. One that's actually mentoring. <laughs> do you send them roses or how do you woo? How yeah, do you yeah, woo? Just, just chocolate, just like really complimentary messages on a regular basis. <laughs> Sleep in your car one outside actually, their house. Yep. Yeah, yeah, just like cute little waves at the end of a Zoom call. Uh, one that's actually <laughs> mentoring and then one that's gone from a mentor to a friend. Oh. Right? And, and, and there might be a friend that I have a beer with or an occasional email, but there's, there's normally like this, there's the three phases and that's the formal ones. But, but I'm just, I'm, I, I'm honestly so fortunate. The people I get to meet through the events I go to, I just ask them questions because I'm just crazily curious. Mm. And, and most people, if you ask them a question, you're feeding their ego. They're going to give you an answer, mm. right? And if you ask them a follow-up question, they're going to talk even more, right? People love telling their stories. And I just, I, I, I don't, I don't learn well from people like me. I learn well from people that are different. So I, I love being at an event and either virtually or, or in person, just seeing someone going, that's them. I'm going to, I'm going to zero in on them because I, I want them to challenge and provoke and just like break my world for me. And that's way more fun. Mm. Have you been joyous since the day you came into the world? Oh, I, I don't remember that day. I'm, I, I, I tell you, if, if, if I trust my mother, I've been a pain in the arse today <laughs> outside of the world, but I don't know if she'd call it joyous. I think there's highs and lows. But did you say I'm crazily joyous? That's what you said before. Yeah, I am actually. I just, I, I've got this mindset of just like, what, what can we do? I'm, I, I've got more of an abundance and positive yeah, mindset. Yeah, that's very am. loud. That's very loud coming through, which is why I was curious about what you do when you come across people who have more of a scarcity mindset, personally or professionally. Well, I, I, I just like to listen. I like to listen to them because I, I don't, I don't think that I'm right. Like, I, I think the way I do stuff is right for me. But I don't think that I'm any more right in the world than anyone else. Mm. And so when I meet those people, I just get even more curious. I'm like, oh, like, tell me about your world. Like, what, what happened to make you think like that? And how does that manifest? And what yeah. impact does that have? And, yeah. and, 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 and is that positive in some way? Because I'm sure it is. And I'm sure it's great as a protection mechanism. It's very positive. Mm. And so I, I'm always curious about, like, why they're that way and how it manifests in their, in their life. Yeah, so maybe more than just crazily joyous or a pain in the ass, it's the curiosity that's been the common yeah. thread. Mm. Yeah, and, and, just, and, and I'm sure if, if it had existed when I was a kid, it would have been ADHD as well. I, just, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think my curiosity comes from this, oh, look, a thing over there. Like I've got this constant desire for newness, um, and mm. I think using that, turning that into a superpower has been helpful for me. Were you and Trudy similar? Um, yes and no. I mean, all my family, we had, we had, we had a very similar, very different upbringing. And we all end up in, in very different parts uh, of life. Right? I was, you know, up until my, my younger sister grew up, I was the only person uh, in my, my immediate family that had ever left the village. Mm. And so when, when I left the village to go to university, there was uh, tears from my mother and, and outcry from the locals. <laughs> um, I'm sure there was much gossip in the local supermarket and, and post office about where he was going. Uh, my my grandparents left them, slightly older generation. When I uh, when I went to university, uh, my my grandma sat me down and said, "You need to be honest with me. What's happened? What are you running away from?" And I explained that I've got a good course and everything was nice. And, and three years later, when I finished at university, which was only thirty five miles away, I remember going back to Manchester to, to see a whole lot of people. And I've got a job in London. And I, and I told her, "Nana, you should be really proud. I've got this wonderful job in London." And she's like. What are you running away from? <laughs> who, who said something? What's happened? Is it your, I think she blamed my mom. Is it your mother? And then if you imagine three years later when I said, hey, I've got an amazing opportunity. I'm going to Sydney. <laughs> and uh, my, plus, plus my, my grandma sat me down with a very deep cup of tea and said, are you gay? Oh, and she said, yeah. Are you gay? So her and my granddad, You're still oh, yeah, running. Yeah, her and my granddad. Yeah, her and my granddad had had a chat and realized the only thing that it could possibly be was homosexuality. And I was like, no, it's, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. You know, it's a, it's a common, I'm going to go for two years. And, and anyway, it was just a different stage. But it, it, what it's shown, what it's and, and there's a fascinating thing I want to share with you. Uh, I've been in Australia now for 17 years. So I consider myself to be English. It's my, my home, my heritage, where my family was. And if I think about truly in our connections, we had so many uh, stories and nostalgia from that time. But, but a couple of visits ago, while she was still with us, we, we were driving around Manchester. And I said to her, I need to explain that being here right now is very familiar and completely foreign. Mm. And, and, and she's like, why? And I said, it's, I, I, it's familiar because I know the street names and I know the pubs, I know the colloquial language, but this hasn't been my home for like 20 years. And so there's this weird moment of going, which world or which life am I in? Right? Because we actually often transpose many worlds and many lives. And, and in that regard, I was Don, the guy from Manchester, and I had a very different job. 
to dom the game in Sydney. And so it's just this acknowledgement. You've been on your own hero's journey, really, and come back transformed yeah. and with a new version of, of yourself. Where's home for you yeah. now if you have to put a, you know, a place or pinpoint a place? I, I, I mean, let's like, just hope my mum's not listening to this because she, she <laughs> tends to still stop after 20 years. Home is Sydney, right? I'm a citizen uh, of, of Australia. Uh, Australia is my home. It's where me and my girlfriend live. It's where, where I own my home, where I live and work and have my, my close friends. And my life is, is here, but but I also very much I, I know it sounds cheesy. I consider myself to be a citizen of the world because mm-hmm. I have so many colleagues in different parts of the world that I care intimately about. And certainly in times like the pandemic, right when you realise that we're not all in the same boat, right we're all in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. Some of us are in luxury yachts, and some of us are in dinghies. And I've got colleagues that are barely surviving in dinghies right now. Mm-hmm. And so even though I, I'm, I'm living what I think is a very fortunate life in, in Australia, certainly in, in the pandemic times. I, I, I always like to remind myself that we're part of a bigger ecosystem and we have to empathise and remember that, otherwise we can get very insular and very selfish. Dom, what does the future of work hold for you personally? It involves us finding better ways of being human. And just to convince your listeners, you haven't paid me to say this, but <laughs> I, I do work for a technology company and that, that isn't a secret, but I do not think the future of work is technology. Mm-hmm. I, I think technology will always be an amplifier but we have to pony up to realize that the real secret source of amazing teamwork is humans, mm. that cross-functional diverse team that comes together with respectful dissent, and the true diversity and inclusion of people from all different forms and shapes and backgrounds and experiences coming together. That creates an amazing rich tapestry that suddenly doesn't feel like work. Right? It, it, we can actually find ways of meaningfully integrating that into life so that we have both. Right? It shouldn't be either or. Uh, we, we should have an existence where we can have impact we can leave a legacy behind whilst working and being a family member and a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife. Or, and we should be all those things, not just any one of them. And, and I think to do that effectively, we have to fundamentally go back to the drawing board and understand what work is, right? And, and, and it, it doesn't need to be the source of our purpose, right? And, and do we need all this extravagancy around it? Or is there a, a simpler way of stripping back the complexity we've added into bureaucracy? As you pay homage to before, there's 300 years of calcified bureaucratic ways of working. How do we unravel those and unrust them to, to build a better future? And I think the pandemic should be our springboard to go, okay, bad thing, really really bad thing happened, but it forced an experiment on, on us. What can we learn from that and what can we do differently and, and take this into our own hands rather than waiting for it to happen? It's interesting, like, you know, uh, maybe it was at Space where you were really big on the four L's and now you've gone on and, yeah. and created your new, um, your new model. Where are you using the personal moral inventory? Like, are you using it at Atlassian or outside of that? Yeah, a, a little bit of like, I, I mean, I use it myself. Like, it's a very selfish tool. I, I, I still sort of reflect on it quite regularly. But also, uh, a lot of mentoring and coaching sessions. Mm. So, so uh, you, you probably understand the number of people that come to me go, I have, I have this problem. Here's the problem, X. Can you give me a solution? I'm like, no, I can't. Mm-hmm. But let's sit down with a tea, coffee, or, or, or a wine. And let's go through the PMI. And they're like, no, I don't need that. Like, here's the specific problem. I just need a fix. I'm like, I'm not a doctor. Once we go through the PMI for those that weren't to do it, you suddenly realize you're about to fix the exact wrong thing. Right? And so I'm using it as a tool to say to people, pause. Like, stop looking for a solution until you've realized what was like falling over the problem first and truly understand it. Then let's try and find a solution. But everyone's jumping to solutions, which, if you think about it, makes sense because any thought leadership online right now is all solutions. Like, do this and it solves your problem. And you're like, what problem? Well, because <laughs> right? I think because so we, we think leaders should know. We, you know, when we, hear yeah. a leader, when we hear a leader say, I actually don't know the answer or I don't know that, yeah. people are a bit uncomfortable. They expect the leader to be the yeah. prophet or the, you know. Yeah. It's actually, the answer to everything. Yeah. I, I, as a therapist, I'm a psychologist, Dom, and it's mm. something that I experience. And I'm also I do a lot of coaching and, and in the business space as well. And often people, particularly in, you know, more personal therapy will say, what do you think I should do? Should I leave yeah. my job? Should I um, leave the marriage? Should I raise my child this way or that way? And I'm the first to say, what kind of arrogant therapist would I be if I thought that I, I had the solutions to an issue that mm. you've been rolling around for decades? It's, yeah. I, I don't yeah. have an answer. I don't have a solution, but I've got questions. I can hold a mirror up and we'll do that until you feel that something shifts in the direction you need it to. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and that's why that in those sort of personal coaching or where you've got someone who's, who's, who wants to be a little bit more vulnerable but doesn't know how, I just start with that. So I'm like, if you can't do this on yourself, yeah, 
then, then really I, I probably can't help, right? Yeah. That, that's a different problem that needs to be solved by someone professional versus if you got even like, let's talk about your scores and, and where they're at and, and just challenge yourself on them and, and talk around them because I don't tell them what a minus one, not or one is. Mm. They get to decide that. They do their own scoring system. And so it brings out this amazing narrative where you're like, okay, cool. Now we can have an honest conversation. And yeah. now we've done that. We're in that zone of honesty. I love how positive your your messaging is infectious. Like I, I'm sitting here, I just started to daydream and look out the window and think, I'd like to work with Dom. <laughs> <laughs> I think because the human the human experience is so loud for every one of us, and when we feel that's dialed down. We feel some sort of grief. I think some individual and collective loss around that. So to hear you magnifying that story as someone who is, you know, um, steeped in technology, so to speak, mm. is really inspiring. And I think it's a great takeaway message. We like to finish our conversations on human cogs asking everyone the same question. And that's amongst all the complexities that life throws at us. Who do you think's doing human well apart from Mary in San Francisco? Who do I think is doing human well? Uh, Jacinta Arden would probably be one of my biggest choices right now. I mean, I, I love the work that Biden's doing in, in the US. I think he, he's doing a very good job of, of reintegrating. He's taking the divide and, and bringing people back into this, this shared understanding. But I think the stuff that Jacinta's done in, in New Zealand has been, has been epic. And, and I think even at a business level, there are still, still some business leaders out there that are putting their head above the parapet and, and trying to stand up to stuff. And I'm amazingly proud when I say that, even, even when I've been teaching the, you know, I, I'm fortunate to work with Scott and Mikey standing up for climate and for diversity and a whole other stuff where you're like, you don't have to do that. Like you've, you've got your own business to run, but they're choosing to, to put like big issues at the forefront and challenge big political powers and say, you know, in, in Mike's case, maybe coal isn't our future or gas isn't our future. Maybe we should be the leader in renewables as, as a, as an economy and as a, uh, you know, Australia is a sustainable business. And so, I think there's a whole lot of people out there doing human well and caring for the right things for the right reasons, but I think we need to do more of it and, and, and maybe be less apologetic about it. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 